The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good evening. I'm happy to be here. And um, tonight and the following three weeks, we're going to explore the last three elements of the Eightfold Path, which are called right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Um, What I want to do tonight is give an overview of that that part of the Eightfold Path, but also give some background and some context from which to understand it. Some of you will be quite familiar with the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths, and for some of you it might be quite new but they're really foundational aspects of the teaching, so we need to have some context in which to understand it. The Buddha pointed out um, something that all of us are doing, probably all the time, which is the way that we go about seeking happiness, or our well-being, or our welfare, if you will, what is it that we all do? Just, this is, and by the way, it's nothing we're doing wrong, it's just what human beings do. Whether we're conscious of it or not, we're trying to have more pleasant experiences, or we may say, get more of what we want, and we're trying to have less unpleasant experiences, have less of what we don't want in life, right? Every, everybody doing that? Yeah probably aren't going to stop doing that. It's part of being a human being. And I don't think there's inherently anything wrong with it, even if we could stop doing it. Except for one thing. If our well-being is completely dependent upon circumstances, upon the nature of the experience we're having, at the very at the very least, it's a tenuous well-being, right? Because we all know, first, well, there's two things we know. First, that we, we can't completely control our lives and what happens to us, right? Pretty obvious. But we keep trying. Um, and even if you could completely control your life and have just the experiences you wanted, they, of course, will bring some happiness and a sense of well-being in to a certain degree, but nothing lasts forever. And because of that, happiness tied up in circumstances, no matter what the circumstances or the situation or the experience is, it can help us but it's not going to ultimately solve our problem or permanently solve our problem because things don't last. So the Buddha just pointed this out. And so one way to think about all of the Buddhist teachings is, I don't know that the Buddha said it this way, but it's one way you could think of it is that it's asking us to make a shift in how we relate to the world, to ourselves, to our experience, to our lives in that rather than our happiness, or I'll say our well-being or our welfare being 
completely only about having or not having certain experiences. We start to pay attention to how are we being with or how are we relating to whatever experience it is that we're actually having. And that's a real shift and can be very eye-opening for a lot of people. And some of the things that we're being asked to explore or experiment with or investigate is, is it possible to come to some kind of place of, a deeper place of happiness or well-being, or sometimes we'll use this word liberation or freedom, which is, can have a lot of meanings. We won't explore that a lot tonight. But is it possible to come to these places of a deeper happiness or a deeper freedom in the midst just of however life is? And not only if life looks this way, but definitely not if it looks that way. And that's a real shift for a lot of us. So there's a lot we could say just about that. Really, that's one way you could think about the whole, all of the Dharma teachings. <clears throat> and there's what's called the Four Noble Truths. The First Noble Truth really is taking... It, it, it just says exactly, in, a, in simpler language, exactly what I, what I was just pointing to. And there's this word in the Pali language. You don't have to learn any Pali. But sometimes it might be, there's a few words that might be useful, and this is one of them. The word is dukkha, dukkha. So sometimes the Buddha is thought to have said that life is suffering. That's pretty common understanding of Buddhism. But he didn't actually say that. He used, in the Pali language, it's preserved that he said life is dukkha. And it's not exactly the same. Because we know that life has, pl every one of us, you know, we all, everybody here has experienced suffering. We're all fellow sufferers. <laughs> but I hope we're also fellow experiencers of happiness or joy too. And it's, it's a mix, right? And how much you, some of us have more of one than, than another. So life's not all suffering. <clears throat> the word dukkha does include the meaning of suffering but it also includes what I was talking about a little a few moments ago, this unreliable aspect to life, that you can't completely control things. And many of us are trying really hard, right? And sometimes it's, it still can be just, it's not easy. For some people, things are easy and they flow easily, but for many of us, it's, it's, it's not. It's, it can be hard even though we're really trying our best. And so there's this uncontrollable aspect to life or an unreliable, or another way it's talked about, you, you might say it's kind of an inherently unsatisfactory nature in that it contains suffering or even getting what you want is not going to ultimately be satisfying because nothing lasts. I mean, if, if nothing else, we ourselves will die. Right. So we know all this intellectually, but we don't live our lives as if it's true. Right? And we're going to continue to do the same things we've always been doing. Try to set up our lives to have it look the way we want it to look. There's nobody here trying to make your life look the way you don't want it to look. You know, nobody's here trying to get less of what you want and more of what you don't want. Or nobody here is trying to have more unpleasant experiences and less pleasant experiences. No one's trying to do that. So we're going to continue. But we need to have this wisdom 
to understand and reflect upon these teachings and see if we can bring into part of our approach to how we live life um, there was a movie let me say it this way I saw a movie this last week called I think the title is A Serious Man it's a new movie out by the Cohen brothers interesting movie If I won't tell you much about it except um, at the beginning a quote there's this interesting scene that happens and then before the credits roll uh, opening credits there's a little quote that comes up against a black screen I forgot who it was attributed to and, it, and this is not exact but it was said something like receive all that happens or that happens to you with simplicity that was the quote and it was pointing to kind of what the movie was really about. So we could understand those words. I've talked to some people about it, and people, when they hear those words, what does it mean with simplicity and everything? But I think what it was saying is, we're going to continue to try our best to have life go how we want it to be, and then at the end of the, moment by moment, what, you get what you get. And what are we going to do with you get what you get? That's what we're being asked to do. It just is what it is, right? I mean, these are kind of Dharma cliches that we hear over and over. But it's, it's very, very important to look at, well, this is what's happening in the pleasant, present moment. How am I relating with this experience? And can we find some way of kind of a letting go or non-clinging? Or I, I, I think this is what it means with simplicity, the way I took it. Maybe a sense of equanimity in the face of just the way life is. And, of course, we want to acknowledge that there's lots and lots of things that can happen that are very, very strongly unpleasant, say, for example. And, you know, maybe it's not so easy to have that equanimity. So we want to acknowledge that and be respectful of the really difficult things that can happen. But we start to practice in ways that widen and expand the range of experiences for which we can just rest at peace and not being jerked around by the experience so much. It's this, um, you know, people talk about, it's, it's a cliche about um, inner peace, right? We meditate to get inner peace. Well, this is the, uh, the digital age we all live in now. You know, it used to be when you'd give, it, it's, it happens all the time, right? As I've had my, own, my cell phone go off uh, give, in the middle of giving Dharma talks before. So, you know, this stuff happens. Uh, actually, I've, seen, I've actually seen uh, someone answer their cell phone uh, when giving a Dharma talk. So, uh, you know. <laughs> it reminds me, just let me check and make sure I turn my cell phone off. Sorry, just one moment. It's on. <laughs> okay. So this is a little background that I'm talking about of, of one way to think about kind of what, what are Dharma teachings? What was the Buddha trying to talk, say to us and how was he trying to make some shifts maybe in how we approach life? And so there's this first noble truth, which is the truth of dukkha, which is this suffering or we could say unreliable or unsatisfactory aspect to life. And that's a huge topic. It's really a lifetime of study to really understand Dukkha and get it. But that's the basic idea. 
And we can all reflect and look into our own lives and see whether that's true or not. <clears throat> and then the suffering part comes from the clinging, right? Because things are impermanent, for example, um, if we're clinging to our youth, well, what's going to happen? We're going to get older, right? We all know it. I don't know if when you're young you can really get it. I really don't know. But, um, right. So look, things happen moment to moment as they happen. So, right? so um, I don't know if we can really get it. Maybe when you get older you don't really get it either. I don't know. <laughs> but if we're, if we're clinging to your youth, what's going to happen? going to suffer at some point, right? That's, it's the clinging. It's not being able to just, that letting go or non-clinging is kind of um, just opening up to the way things are with a sense of simplicity or equanimity or a peaceful heart, quiet mind and an open heart. That's all. It's conceptually simple, but not so easy to do, which is why we need some help. And which is why the Buddha laid out this path of practice, ways we can try to train ourselves to deepen or strengthen our ability to make these shifts so our well-being or happiness is not only about having to have life look some way and not some other way, but finding a sense of equanimity and peace, and we use this word freedom, in the midst of whatever's happening in our lives. And that includes the fact that we grow old, we get sick, we eventually die, things don't always go our way, life's up, it's down, we have happiness, we have sorrow, all of it, and finding a place of peace in the midst of it all. So we, can, we I think, could all use some help. And the Buddha was giving us uh, ways of practice. One of the things we're doing when we come here to meditate we just sat here for half an hour. I'm sure there was a range of experiences that people had. Probably for some people it was quite pleasant. Calm, peaceful. Probably for many people it was difficult. Maybe you felt sleepy, restless, body hurt. Who knows, right? So it was a range of experiences. But what is it that we're doing? We close our eyes. You could practice with your eyes open. We bring our attention inward to really connect with our experience. We're really learning, we're putting into practice exactly what the Buddha is talking about, connecting with our experience, strengthening a number of qualities, and this is what we're going to be talking about on this right effort, right mindfulness and concentration. It's exactly these qualities of meditation that enable us to do several things. It enables us to be more present. It enable, We're going to say a lot more of this about this over the coming weeks. To be more present to be less reactive, to see more clearly what's going on so that we can learn to let go and not cling and find the, find the peace. Right. And so just for completeness, completeness, let me just wrap up about the Four Noble Truths for those who haven't heard it. And you don't have to memorize all this. If you just stick around the Dharma scene long enough, you'll hear this stuff over and over again and it just sticks in your mind eventually, even if you don't formally go and study it. A little study, I think, she, as Diana said, I was part of the Sati Center, which is bringing this event on Saturday with Ajahn Amaro, so I believe study is, is valuable, but you don't have to. 
So this first noble truth is saying there is this dukkha. It's just a fact of life. The second noble truth is saying that what really gives rise to that clinging in the mind is, is what's called craving. Sometimes people think that Buddhism says desire is a bad, but it's not true. Actually, desire is talked about a lot in ways that can, can serve us. You know, if you didn't desire or want to come here, you wouldn't. If you didn't desire to meditate, for example, you wouldn't even be giving it a try. So there's wholesome ways desire, but the second noble truth, it's actually the specific word that's craving. It's a particular kind of desire. And because of craving, and it basically the craving is meaning that craving for wanting to have more pleasant experience and wanting to push away unpleasant experience. It keeps us from having a sense of equanimity and resting at peace, even if the experience itself is pleasant or unpleasant. And I realize I'm glossing over this. These are all big topics. But that's the basic second noble truth, this craving, which gives rise to this clinging of the first noble truth. Then the third noble cr- truth is just pointing out that there's an ending to this suffering, that there is an end of any kind of unease or non-well-being or any kind of suffering. There's an ending. And it's usually, uh, it's that uh, nirvana, which is the Sanskrit, or nibbana is the Pali, which is the subject of, on Saturday with Ajahn Amaro, um, it's not actually in the formulation of the Four Noble Truths, but it's normally equated with that ending of suffering is this nirvana. And then the fourth noble truth is the path that leads to the end of suffering. And it's called the Eightfold Path, and it's got these eight elements. And this is where the Buddha is saying, okay, if we can agree that it might be a good idea, it might be useful for us to find a way of dealing with life or dealing with our experiences so we're not just caught up at the effect of things, but we can actually find a deeper, more reliable place of peace or freedom in the midst of all, whatever we're dealing with in life. Then the eight, if, if we can agree to that, well, then the Eightfold Path is here's some ways that the Buddha is saying we should actually practice, and he lays it out for us. And so I just want to briefly mention something, name the elements and say a little bit. We won't go into detail. And again, this is a whole other big topic. You don't have to memorize these eight steps. Um, But I just want to say them so you've heard them. And I'm going to mention a little something about each one. And then we'll focus on ours, our pieces, the last three. So let me just say them uh, just quickly and then pause a little bit with each one. There's what's called, it starts with what's called right view or sometimes called right understanding. The second element is uh, right intention or sometimes called right thought. And then there's right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then gets into the, what we're going to be focusing on, which is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So, the, the Eightfold Path is often broken into these three sections. The first two, the right understanding and the right intention, are called the wisdom section. Actually, before I say that, I, I, it's important, this word right, in, in our culture, it can have a connotation of you know, right and wrong, and kind of a judge, judging ourselves or a critical 
you're doing it right, you're not doing it right, you're doing it wrong. But that's not the, uh, the, the, the intent of the, the words at all. The, it, in Pali, the word is sama, and it actually, if you look it up in the Pali English Dictionary, it says it actually has the meaning to be connected in one with, which is very beautiful. So how do we, what kind of speech or action or livelihood would be connected in one with? Well, one with what? Well, in one with that which is wholesome or skillful, that which leads to more happiness and to less suffering. Or connect, you could say connected in one with life or connected in one with each other. There's a lot of, any way you take it, I think, works and is very, very beautiful. So the meaning, we're going to continue to use the word right, I think, because we've, it's just gotten into the lexicon. Most people say right. But the way to understand it is really it's more wise and skillful. That's the sense. So we just want to understand what we mean. <clears throat> so right understanding and right intention, um, it has a certain meaning in the beginning of the path, and then it, it comes to a certain meaning at the end. So in the beginning of the path, right understanding, the way I always talk about it is, it's like if I want to walk north, I don't have to have it exact. I just don't want to be walking south. I want to more or less be heading in the right direction so we could think of it as having a basic understanding of these teachings, kind of like what I was just talking about earlier, like of the noble truths and things. Get the basic understanding to inform the choices we make. And out of that, we set the second noble truth is what are our intentions? And we can make them more conscious. And we can reflect in our life what's most important to us. What's our life all about? Or what do we want it to be about in the deepest and highest sense? And because people, sometimes people reflect on it, but people often don't. And by doing that and keeping that intention in mind, which is informed by that first noble truth, uh, first of the Eightfold Path of, of right understanding, informs our intention. And then when we bump up against choices or different circumstances in life, we can um, refer back to well, what is my intention right now? and let that, really in the highest or deepest sense, and hopefully that helps us make better choices. We're not going to be perfect about it, but it, it can be a help. And then the second section, are the, so those are the first two pieces of the Eightfold Path. The next three pieces are what are called in Pali, sila, which is translated as morality or ethical behavior. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. So it's speaking, it's acting, it's earning a livelihood in ways that won't go into it, but basically there's a lot that's talked about and taught about it. So you can spend a lot of time on these topics. They're big topics. But it basically entails living, speaking, acting in ways that create less harm, less suffering for ourselves and others, and they create more happiness and well-being for ourselves and others. That's what it's talking about. And then this last piece is sometimes called the samadhi. So we're going to talk about this, this word samadhi, generally translated as concentration, but in this sense it means meditation. But it's kind of thought of as the meditation piece. So now we'll focus in on this. And that's the place that's of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. What's the right amount of effort? What should it look like? 
And we'll, that's what we'll talk about next week. And the following week, we'll go into right mindfulness. And then the last one, this right, this word samadhi, and which is normally concentration, but it's actually not a, a, good, a good translation. <clears throat> but we'll have to wait to get into that in too much detail. Okay. And the whole point of this uh, last piece is we need to learn how to train our minds... You know, if you, when we, one of the things that often people comment on when they start to meditate is, you know, you sit down and whatever, you get in some posture or you sit in a chair and maybe you've never meditated and, or maybe you've been meditating a long time, whatever. You close your eyes and you try to just do something simple. You, so tonight I was giving some suggestions of working with the breath. Well, that's pretty simple instruction, right? And we start to notice that you can't do it. I mean, you can do it in a moment. <laughs> but can you stay with your breath? How, did, how was it going for you tonight? Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I don't want to focus on you too. Yeah. We start to find that our minds are completely out of control. Totally out of control. Ajahn Sumedho, I, I should have thought to bring the quote tonight, but he, he, he has some, I'll try to paraphrase, he says, you know, so he and he talks about this, and he says, when we actually see what's going on in our minds, it's horrifying <laughs> how completely out of control our minds are. And then he goes on to say, we don't have an inkling on, on what leads to happiness, not an inkling. And he's really pointing to this first part I was talking about tonight. You know, if you go and talk to anybody just out on the street, and you say, well, what leads to happiness? And the specifics of what it looks like will be different. We'll all have our conceptions of what you know, our perfect life looks like. But it has something to do with life looking a certain way and not another way. Just a few years ago, I ran across an old list I had made many years ago when I was in my 20s. And back in those days, someone had given me a tape, or I can't remember what it was, but it was one of these, it might have been like a Tony Robbins tape or something. I'm not picking on Tony Robbins, um, but uh, one of these guys who's talking about you know, you can create your life to be how you want, and if you can dream it, you can do it, or it's that kind of thing, right? And it's all about having your right attitude. And so I was thinking, well, you know, that sounds pretty good. And, you know, I'm living my life. I might as well be more conscious about what I want. If I don't, I'm going to, you know, in five or ten years, assuming I'm still alive, life will look like something. I might as well try to direct it to figure out step by step. And so I made all these lists. Well, what would my dream life look like? And... What was interesting about that list was I had, it was all about, you know, none of it was about the quality of my own mind. <laughs> it wasn't on the list. <laughs> it was all about, um, like, what kind of relationship situation I'd be in, what kind of, would I own a house or not, my financial situation, all this stuff. I, I used to, when I was younger, I had a... Um, bench press competition going on with my brother. You know, I wanted to bench press more than my brother, uh, all this kind of stuff. I just had all this thing on there, right? And then I can't remember what happened, but at some point I just forgot about the list and I was cleaning out a file cabinet just only a few years ago and I ran across the list. There it was. And I pulled it out. It was very interesting to look back. Some of the things had happened. Some of the things didn't. But what really struck me is what I just said Nowhere on there was any of the things that now are the most important. What are the qualities of my own heart and mind? It was all, I want this, I don't want this. You know, it was, it was all I want, I want, I want. 
And a lot of the things on the list, the other thing that struck me is some of the things on the list I just don't even care about anymore. And some of the things on the list had happened, and I noticed it didn't make me any happier at all. Like the bench press one, I'm not, a, I'm not that big into weightlifting, but you know, all my life I've worked out in a gym just to be healthy and do aerobics and I lift weights and just to keep my body healthy. And, um, you know, these, you know this, what I'm about to tell you is way behind me now as I've gotten older. But I did get to a certain point that I could bench press a certain amount. And I thought, oh, you know, I don't know what I thought. I was going to like, you know, if I could do it, I don't know, maybe I would enter some zone of perfection of bliss and ha- I don't know or fulfillment you know if I can just get the whatever you know and that's really a lot of what our uh, this wanting mind is and desire is it's the promise of happiness that's going to come if we get it right a few years ago my daughters I've told the story here a number of times my daughter who was in college her car died and it just was time to for her to get a new car so we gave her, gave her my car, and I got a new car. And I was perfectly happy with my car, wasn't thinking about it. And then all of a sudden I decided I wanted to get a Prius, which I drive, and I appreciate it. It's a great car. I'm very happy with it. Um, but all of a sudden I started noticing Priuses, and I was craving a Prius. And it was back when, I don't know how it is now, but you know there was kind of a waiting list to get one. And I was just like, had this craving. I couldn't wait to get the Prius, and I just had this craving. What I noticed is when that desire got fulfilled actually for the first couple of days I was kind of in a zone of happiness then it kind of wears off and you go back down to normal they say that happens even to people who win the lottery right you know once the initial euphoria you're just kind of back to I mean you're you got your bank you didn't have the problems around money you had but you kind of they've done all these studies and you're back to kind of whatever level of happiness or unhappiness you had before but it was a relief because the craving was gone. I mean, it's not that something else didn't take its place, right? But so fulfilling desire can, can um, relieve the craving, which is a, a, a real re- relief. But um, it doesn't ultimately do it for us because the, something else that we want will just fill in. Right? So... Meditation is a training of the mind and the heart. One way to think of it is learning to live in a way where our minds can be more at peace and our hearts can be more open. And the first step, you know what they say like in, um, I don't know, I may get this wrong, I was going to say something about 12 step, but I'm not in the 12 steps, I'm... For those of you, I may not get it right, but isn't it like the first step you have to acknowledge there's a problem or something like, right? Somewhere in there, you've got to, right? So, you know, to see that our minds are out of control is, is like, it's a good thing to just acknowledge. And then we don't have to create a problem about it. We want to just have a sense of ease and, and relaxation, but we can start, it can start to inform our intentions, and then we need to reflect on well, what is important to me in my life. Where does the Dharma teachings fit in to the priority of what my life's about or what I want my life to be about? And that's going to, you know, I'm not, I can't sit here and say what that should be for each of us. But we should really reflect on these teachings of impermanence and dukkha 
and craving and clinging and the, and, and the freedom that can come as we can let the effects of those lessen in us and find a deeper place of freedom and happiness. And then what does it look like to show up in the world from, a, from, from that place, right? So I hope we will all reflect on that to inform the choices we make. And as part of that, then, we need to learn to, tr- to start to train our minds so they aren't as out of control, right? And so that is what this last piece is about. <clears throat> and so I'm just going to say, just to wrap up, and then we'll have a little Q&A time if, if anybody has any comments or questions, what we'll be looking at is these three aspects. So this idea of right effort, um, the word effort, for some people has the meaning of it always means, you know, effort feels like you're kind of straining, that it can have that connotation. But really what it's talking about is just the right amount of action or activity or doing, right? It's an effort. But as we're going to see, it, we want to have a balanced effort. So we, there's go, we're going to need to, right, if, to come here to meditate, you needed to do something. You do, you, unless you want to sit and just let your mind space out or just wander as it will, you actually di- you made some effort. You directed the mind, say, say, towards the breath if you were following the instructions tonight or in whatever style you practice, you, you were engaging in somehow. So there was some effort there. But we need to keep it balanced so we don't over-effort. We want to still stay at peace and relaxed. If we over-effort, we end up creating a lot of suffering along this path that's meant to come to an end of suffering. Right? And so we often can do that. Right? We beat ourselves up in meditation because we're not doing it good enough or it's not going how we want or we're struggling and somehow. So we're going to spend some time looking at not only what right effort is, but how we can put it into practice. What can we actually do? What can we notice? And then what can we do to help us find the balance? And that's what we're going to spend all next time on. And then we'll be the week after that about right mindfulness. And mindfulness gets talked about so much in insight meditation. You know, And for some teachers, it's almost as if that's all we talk about is mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. And you can teach insight meditation as... But um, um, in the Pali language tradition, there was a lot more that mindfulness is important. And I often call it the crown jewel, but it's not the whole package at all. So, for example, any of you who've ever tried to take on uh, a practice, say, in your daily life, okay, I'm going to be as mindful as I can in my daily life. So what happens? You... You get up in the morning and you say, okay, I'm being mindful as I brush my teeth and and whatever it is. And next thing you know, eight hours later, you kind of wake up and realize, oh, yeah, I forgot. I'm just trying to be mindful, right? You were just caught up in things, What what I call being on automatic pilot. You were just, you weren't unconscious, but you're just caught, lost up, lost in things. So mindfulness alone... um, that, that's an example of mindfulness without the, the last element, the samadhi, the concentration piece. We also need to strengthen, so they all work together. 
and we'll say a lot more about what mindfulness is, different ways it's understood, and different ways it's put into practice. And because there's not one right or wrong with any of this. It's, there's many, many ways it's taught, quite a range actually. And so we need to be exposed to a lot of different ways. So then we can see, oh, you know, this way of approaching it, that works for me. This other way, either that teacher didn't resonate or this teacher does or what this person said here kind of fit, but that one didn't. And that's why there is a range of styles and approaches. And so we'll be looking at a range and of right so for some people if all we ever talked about was mindfulness that's all you need to hear and for other people we really need to practice in ways that it's not just mindfulness it's mindfulness and concentration and, and we're, we're we're conscious of other things there's a lot of we'll actually talk about some different ways we can practice too not just theoretical understanding but here's you can approach practice this way or that way and we'll we'll say some things about different ways and then the last week um, on the samadhi, right samadhi is the word, right, uh, which we call right concentration. Um, I don't want to say too much about it tonight, but it's very important. And you notice it's the final element. Mindfulness was not the eighth. It was the seventh. It was actually the right samadhi. Right, is, it was the final. Right, sam- the way I view it is mindfulness isn't, isn't the same as insight. Mindfulness is the practice that leads to right samadhi, which is really more deeper level of what we're talking about. But that's not what everybody would say. So we'll explore that a little, and I'll name some of the different ways it's taught. I'll talk about how I tend to approach it, but also some of the other, what other teachers do too, so we can each see for ourselves which way is the best. Because again, I'm repeating, but it's so important to keep in mind it's not a right or wrong. Right. If we took the time, and we won't do it tonight, but if we took the time and went around the whole group and asked people what they did and how they practiced, it'd be a many, many different things people are doing. And probably people getting good results through a lot of different things. So um, that's good news. It's not like we have to find the right way. We just have to see what resonates for us individually, and then we put it into practice and we see the results. And then over time, we might continue, or maybe later we hear a little something. It's kind of like when I go into the gym. You know, I've been going in for so many years. I kind of have my routine. But every once in a while, I notice somebody doing something I never thought of. And sometimes it's like I'm just not even interested. But sometimes it's like, huh, I think I'm going to try that. And I go give it a try. And maybe I, get, maybe I stop doing something I used to do when I do it this other way now. Or I incorporate it in. So it's the same thing with all these practices. And that's part of why we get exposed to a lot of different teachers and styles. So that's kind of the background and the overview of what right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration are and how we're going to approach them over the coming three weeks. So what I'd like to do now is let's stop with my piece. And um, we can open it up. Do you want people, if people do have a comment or a question, should they use the microphone? So if anybody has any questions or comments? Hi. Um, yeah, I, I, I heard you say that, um, at least I thought I heard you say, that the one of the objects is to control the mind. And I never really thought of it that way. I always thought of it as being more of a state of non-identification 
with the mind. In other words, you let the mind sort of do its thing, but that's you don't identify with it. That's not really you. That's just your mind doing its thing. And so you can still concentrate um, regardless of what your mind's doing. So the mind right. is more like background noise. So if you hear like a truck, it kind of comes and goes. That's just like the mind with a thought. It kind of comes and goes. And so it's all just sort of background noise as yeah. opposed to trying to control and stop the mind from actually originating the thought. Right. Um, so I'm, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. I did not mean, I did say, you know, one of the things we notice is our minds are out of control. But I, if I did say it, I didn't mean to say that what we're trying to do is the opposite of that, which is control our mind. So what I do think we're trying to do is train our minds. And so I think the way, what you were talking about is, is, is great and beautiful and important, and, and that's a whole big aspect, right? It's not identification. Uh, but um, I would say there are... T- I would say there's two aspects. There are times, if our minds are trained, where it may, in fact, in that moment, be useful to try to control the mind some. And I'm going to give you an example. But there's also going to be times where it's not about controlling the mind, but it is more of a non-identification or a letting go. But during those times, we still want to be aware of what's happening. Who's actually aware? Is, is it your mind or is it, again... I don't know who's okay. aware. I know that... Oh, let me say this. I, you know, we, so first of all, I'm using the term mind in a sloppy way. I don't know what the mind is. I'm not using it in the way that you might hear maybe perhaps some of the Tibetan teachers say. They think of like big mind. They kind of think of that as sort of the ultimate reality. It's sort of like highest truth. Is, they'll say, you know, it's pure awareness or pure consciousness, and that's mind. I'm not talking like that. I'm talking about it in the conventional sense of what our mind is, but I don't know what the mind is. And there's a lot of aspects to the mind. So, for example, you can get into some meditative states that, in which the mind is utterly undistracted and unmoving. I'm not saying that's the goal of all of Dharma, but I'm just saying that something can happen. And there can be another part of the mind that can be aware of that. So maybe these two different parts. So I don't know what the mind is. So... Um, Yes, yeah, so we're not just trying to control the mind. And so let me give you an example of something that happened and a few other approaches that were useful for me. Once I was on this long, long meditation retreat for many, many months, a year-long retreat, and I'd been way deep into it, and I was just in this beautiful, peaceful place. And I don't know, I was maybe six months in, and one morning I woke up and my mind was just full of, I'll use the word hatred, but it was just, it was full of, it was, yeah, I'll just say hatred. <laughs> it was pretty grouchy. I don't know why, I couldn't identify, but I was aware, you know, I had my mindfulness it was in, in my clear knowing was very strong at that point, so I was very clear what was happening, I wasn't spacing out. And so I was trying a number of strategies. The first strategy I tried actually was controlling the mind. It turned out not to work, but I was trying it, so I was trying things like, because I was horrified, but it was what was happening. So I'm walking around the retreat center. You know, I'm just meditating in my room mostly, but I walk through the hallway, and everybody's in silence. And unless they had psychic powers, they wouldn't fortunately know what was going on in my mind because it was pretty ugly. You know, and, you know, just somebody who normally, they're just there, I don't have anything. They'd walk by in my mind, and just whatever it would say about them. And then the next thing I'd do, I'd yell at myself, Shankman! <laughs> well, that wasn't working. Stop it! And I was trying to control my mind with different ways, and, and I was fighting against my mind. 
and it wasn't working. Um, so then what happened, I was finally got to lunchtime, and I was eating, everybody's in the meditation, all the mind's still going, and I was just trying to let go, I was trying to, it was just doing all these different strategies, and I finally just said to myself, okay, fine. If that's the way you're going to be about it, you can just burn in hatred. And so, you know what we're going to do? We're going to finish lunch, and we're just going to go back to the room and sit there, and you can just hate. And so... I just kind of was trying to let go. And so I went back to the room. I laid on my bed. But I wasn't spacing out. I was actually present and clearly knowing what was happening. And I just let it, let the mind do its thing. So I kind of was disidentifying and sort of letting go around it, not trying to control it. Let it kind of happen in an impersonal way. In this case, what I added in was I actually really let myself feel the dukkha, the pain, the suffering of what it's like to have a hateful mind and just really connected with how that was. Not trying to make it go away, but just really feel what's the experience of this, not judging it, just palpable what, what's going on right now. And then after a while, it kind of worked its way out and I guess washed through me or whatever. And I was back to feeling peaceful and calm and I went on with my day. Don't know why it came and everything. So that was a few different strategies. I will say that there are, if you look at the classic Pali texts, the Buddha goes through when we have these, using an example, like these, these kind of states of mind, he goes through a number of different step-by-step -step strategies, and some of them are these, some of the things you brought up. And he does eventually say, you know, if nothing else works, and he's, he, he says, then there's nothing left to do. You just, with willpower, crush down the, so it's the ultimate trying to control your mind. I don't, that doesn't seem to work for me. So what I would say is this, is, if what we're aiming for is a place of, say, where the heart's open, of love and compassion, and the mind's clear and quiet and awake in a place of being more free and liberated, we're not identified, we're not caught up with things, and we're just a place of freedom, if you want to use that word, or enlightenment or whatever, then there's probably a range of skillful means and strategies to, to have that happen and what's needed for each person or any particular time. And so I don't want to say that there's never a time to try to control the mind. And I think the part you're pointing to is critically important also. When is it about letting go around the mind and everything? So we have to come to know what skillful means. Okay? Okay, so thank you. Anyone else? Yes. What do you think of this uh, not-so-current um, phase of um, mindfulness being removed from the context of Buddhism, um, you know, a stress reduction, more yeah. mindfulness, etc. And for me personally, I learned to meditate many, many years ago, and I just thought the mindfulness was all of it. And um, it, it could be all of it. Well, it wasn't for me. Right. <laughs> uh, so it's just recently that I've become aware of the concentration part, and that's the piece that's been missing for right. me. Because my mind is all over the place, and I can run my movies, you know, ad nauseum, and I'm sick of them, and I'm bored with them, right. and it makes me not want to meditate. Yeah. So I'm very, very interested in the concentration well, part. Well, we'll be talking a lot about that. Um, let me say this. Um, two things. First of all, in general having mindfulness removed from either, if you, you could either say from a Buddhist context or I'll say from a Dharma 
context and just the benefits of mindfulness. So for example, it was mentioned earlier, I'm part of an organization called Mindful Schools that's about bringing mindfulness into the schools. It's, it's completely secular. We're not talking about Dharma, Buddhism. We're just bringing these tools for people to have a little more self-awareness. And so it has tremendous benefits just in its own right. And so I think it's wonderful, personally, that mindfulness is starting to become into just the part of our, it's going to, into our culture more and more. So I think that that just can only be of a benefit. And then um, I would also say that as powerful as mindfulness is, and I think it's probably hard to understate how powerful it is, I mean, hard to overstate, excuse me, how powerful it is. Um, in and of itself, it's, there's a lot more you can do if you start to bring in some of these other teachings, like what the Dharma is really pointing to. So oftentimes, for example, just having awareness about something and being mindful of something is not, isn't enough, right? If, we, if we're not able to, right, there's, there's a lot of other pieces in the Dharma that, because Dharma is, so the Dharma is about something different than, say, for example, what we're trying to teach kids, which is more like social and emotional learning or, or uh, you know, emotional intelligence and all that kind of stuff. Dharma is, is its own kind of thing. So, um, but then again, even in the Dharma world, we're all different. So for some people... You know, just moment to moment being as mo- without ever, some teachers will just, they actually consciously de-emphasize the con- concentration piece. The Buddha was not one of them because they, do, you know, but um, uh, some teachers do that. And um, just being mindful the best you can because they don't want people to get over-striving and, you know, you want concentration. I think that does a disservice because people, what we want to do is find a balance. To me, the balanced place is you don't have to get anything. We just be present moment to moment the best we can with whatever's happening in our present moment experience. And the best we can, I realize it's not always easy, can we have a sense of not striving for anything? We just bring our mindfulness right into the moment with no striving and just be happy in the moment. And then with that attitude, again, the best we can, Yes, let's practice in ways that naturally does, in fact, head us somewhere. And we do develop concentration. Actually, we can take it quite far and get in these states of samadhi known as jhana and everything, which is what the Buddha was actually talking about. Um, you know, he, called, he actually said right samadhi is jhana, which is this whole specialized state. So I think we do ourselves a disservice if we don't talk about concentration. And we also do ourselves a disservice if we go too far the other way and say, as some teachers will, who'll say, oh, if you don't get not only concentration, but these rarefied states of concentration, forget it, you're just wasting your time. I don't think that's very useful either. And the, the, the kind of the middle way, if you will, is the place that, that sees the value of all of these qualities and comes at it with a place of non-striving or not over-striving and being at ease and relaxed that kind of cliche of be here now, but recognizing the value. So let's, yes, let's cultivate these qualities. And that's what we're going to be talking about the next three weeks, exactly. Well, the thing that strikes me is that I think I would have been benefited more had I been, had concentration been the first thing. Not right effort, not right attitude, not right view, 
learn to concentrate right. first. Yeah. I think that would have worked for me. Right. And I'm wondering why it's the last in the Eightfold Path. Well, well, first of all, where the, there's, so the order and the path, that's a whole discussion. We're not going to get into that here. But, um, and actually, we're ending in five minutes, so we're actually going to do a closing and end, so we're not going to have time anyway. But I just want to say um, I appreciate what you're saying about what would, have, would serve you the best. And since we're all different, that's actually not true. That's, what you're saying is true for a lot of people, but it's not true for everyone. For some people, hearing concentration first would have been would have not served them well because, and what serves people well, well is just to try and be more aware and bring the mindfulness and coming in through that doorway and then naturally let the concentration deepen on its own however much. And, and, and so we're all different. And that's why I think what's starting to happen now is, is, is the concentration is coming back into our scene more, but hopefully we'll have a balance. And what really the, the duty of a teacher is to get to know each meditator, each student, and to, and to, to be able to offer the, the style of practice and the teaching that's best suited for them. And it, and it reminds me, I'll just end with this uh, well-known story of Ajahn Chah. He's no longer alive, but a famous Thai meditation master. And he was very influential in our whole scene. And somebody was complaining to him because they said, you know, I'm with you, I'm around you, I'm living here, and I notice you're completely inconsistent. You know, some people you'll tell to do one thing, and then other people you'll say something different, or maybe even the opposite. And Ajahn Chah replied that it was like he saw someone walking down the road, and there was a ditch on both sides of the road. And if they were going to the right, he'd say, go left, go left. But if they were going off to the left, he would say, go right, go right. And I think that captures the idea that it's not only because we all have different propensities and, and what we and needs, and, but also um, even for each of us at different times in our life or different phases in our practice, it's going to shift and change also. And so we need to be respectful of that for all of us and to be respectful of exactly what you're saying for you. One-to-one relationship with the teacher. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay, thank you. All right. So thank you. Well, we have um, four minutes by my clock, and I want us to end on time and be respectful of the time to end at 9 o'clock. So here's how I suggest we end. Often here, I guess there's some metta loving-kindness practice for the end, sometimes, but not always. Okay. Well, let's end this way. I would like to invite you to just take a few moments. You may already be doing this. But if not, bring your mindfulness just to connect in with yourself, into your body, into the states of your own mind and your own heart, and just to connect in with your experience, whatever it is. Just in a general way or however you do it. You don't have to make a big project here. And... You know, it may be pleasant, it may be unpleasant, it may be kind of in between. Maybe things were said here or in the discussion or Q&A or whatever that you kind of felt good about. Maybe there's parts you didn't like or whatever. Maybe there's things still resonating from today in your life or whatever. And I would ask you or invite you to notice not only what's happening in your experience 
but notice how you are being with or how are you relating to your experience. And see if there can be that sense of just allowing or letting be. Just letting the experience of your being kind of unfold or manifest moment by moment. From a place of ease and peace, even if it might be unpleasant. So it's an experiment. You just try. It's not always easy to do. And if there's a place in you that's not able to be to be with that, with a sense of letting be or allowing, then have some acceptance for that place in you. The place, you know, they can't let go around this experience. Can't be at peace. That self-acceptance is a place of tremendous loving kindness and compassion for ourselves. And then, uh, to end, we'll do what's traditionally called the, the dedication of merit. And what I mean when I say merit is, I'm, I mean all the good energies, good qualities, just the goodness that, that we've generated this evening. You know, we've all come here, we've all used our time wisely this evening. You came here to meditate. You could have done anything this evening. You came here to re- listen to a talk and reflect on this topic. You know, the whole purpose of a place like this is learning how to live more deeply as loving, compassionate, wise, clear, awake, you know, put in whatever adjectives you like, free and loving beings. That's a beautiful thing. You might have your own version of that, but it's something like that. So all of us have that intention, whether we were conscious of it or not. So when we direct our minds in these ways, whether we're judging how well or poorly we think we did it, but it it shows that beautiful intention. And so, of course, it generates these wholesome states in us. It's strengthening the good, if you will. And it affects not only us, but it affects everybody that we come in contact with. The more free we are, the more loving, kind, caring, compassionate less reactive we are, it's also of benefit for, for everyone we come in contact with. And in fact, it's not possible to practice, do these practices for yourself alone. Right? You literally can't do it just for yourself. So we make that more conscious. That's the, de- the offering of merit. So we'll say, for all of the goodness or Traditionally, we'll say for all the merit that's come about for our time together this evening, let us consciously offer it up. So it's just, it's just cultivating our good heart. May it be for the benefit and liberation of all beings. May all beings come to an be, uh, end of suffering. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free. So thank you all. I was happy to see you this evening and perhaps I'll see some of you next week and we'll start to actually get down into the bright effort.